0: Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. I have no idea why, but the past like five or six days over the general area where my apartment is, there has been a helicopter pretty much every night like flying low and circling almost right above my apartment complex and like the things around my apartment complex. And I was walking to the gym near my apartment (laughs) and it was like following me, but then it turned around and I thought I was in a movie for a second. Like when you look up and you're like being chased by a helicopter, Oh boy. Okay, well, thanks for tuning in to Scandal 101. Probably the biggest scandal that's going on in the news right now is the Alec Baldwin Rust movie set shooting, and I definitely do want to do an episode about that, but I think I'm going to wait until there is an ending to it, whether or not charges are going to be filed or not. I want to wait until the investigation is done to do like a full comprehensive episode on it. That's the biggest thing I've seen in the news recently. Lots going on with that. And it's also interesting, I read an article, but we also talked about it in my criminal law class of if charges are going to be pressed, they may not be pressed against Alec Baldwin as the shooter... But Alec Baldwin as the producer overseeing everything, including how things are run on set, and if he was running things in like a negligent way, maybe this allowed this to happen. There was an interesting NPR article that kind of talked about that dichotomy a little bit, but we also talked about it in Criminal Law, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And then one last thing before I get started, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, if you could go on there and leave a five-star review, if you like the podcast, it just helps other people discover the podcast, I think it like helps with the, like, the algorithm of how people discover it, but yeah, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, if you could leave a five-star review, that definitely helps a podcast grow, and I would greatly appreciate it. Alrighty, so you know the title, or you you know what this episode is about by clicking on the title, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with part of a statement from the Prime Minister of Ireland made on January 13th, 2021, quote, On behalf of the government, the state, and its citizens, I apologize for the profound generational wrong visited upon Irish mothers and their children who ended up in a mother and baby home or a county home. As the commission says plainly, they should not have been there. I apologize for the shame and stigma which they were subjected to and which, for some, remains a burden to this day. In apologizing, I want to emphasize that each of you were in an institution because of the wrongs of others. Each of you is blameless. Each of you did nothing wrong and has nothing to be ashamed of. Each of you deserved so much better. This apology comes after the publishing of an almost 3,000-page report detailing something that shook Ireland to its core. What was it that shook Ireland to its core? It was the emotional and sometimes physical abuse of 56,000 unmarried mothers and the death of 9,000 children. This is the story of Ireland's mother and baby home scandal. First, what were these homes? According to a New York Times article authored by Megan Specia, quote, Mother and baby homes were run by religious orders starting in the 1920s and funded by the Irish government. But the institutions where young women and girls were taken, typically against their will, are not a thing of Ireland's distant past. The last of these facilities closed in 1998, end quote. And from that quote, I just want to point out something that you should keep in mind throughout this whole thing. They were run by religious orders and they were funded by the Irish government. So keeping in mind that they were ran by religious uh, religious orders and they were funded by the Irish government, there were many homes across Ireland. One of the most infamous homes was the Tuam home. It's spelled T-U-A-M, so I thought it was Tuam, but I looked it up, and from all of the videos I could find, it's pronounced like, ch'wam, so (laughs) if you're listening from Ireland, I really hope I'm saying that correctly, but I'm going to say ch'wam because that's what I found in all of the videos that I looked up. The next information comes from an article, a BBC article titled, quote, Irish Mothers and Baby Home, Timeline of Controversy, end quote. In 1925, a former workhouse was converted into a mother and baby home, and the home was owned by the Galway County Council, and... Presume it, um, you probably guessed it was located in the in the county of Galway. But the home was run by the Bon Secours Sisters, an order of Catholic nuns. So the main religious institution that this is involving is the Catholic Church. Cara Fox for CNN interviewed and wrote about someone who was born in the Chuam home. Michael O'Flaherty, he was 71 at the time of the article's publishing, which was in 2019. The day after, so this is going back to when he was born, the day he was born in the home, his mother had tried to see him because of course what mother isn't going to want to see their newborn baby, but she was stopped from doing so by one of the nuns and she was told, quote, go mind your own business, your baby is gone, end quote. The article talked about how the nuns in the home didn't necessarily prohibit mothers who gave birth from seeing their children, but they didn't tell them who their baby was or even if they were in the same building. And also, the house required that the mothers stay in the home for 12 months after giving birth. So not only could Michael's mother not see Michael, but she had to live in the home for 12 months after she had given birth. So already, we're we're off to a horrible start. The homes, to give you some more context, were where, quote, unmarried women were sent to deliver their children under a veil of secrecy, silence, and shame for decades, end quote. Shane Harrelson writes for BBC that Christianity, and especially the Catholic Church, dominated many aspects in Irish life, quote, sex outside marriage was more than just a sin the domination of the church was one in which the state and the people at the time willingly colluded, end quote. So essentially, if you had sex outside of marriage and became pregnant, you would get sent to these homes. And if that isn't bad enough for women who voluntarily, who had sex and got pregnant there, you know, you voluntarily had sex, you accidentally get pregnant, it sucks, That's unfortunate, but not only were those women sent there, children who were victims of institutional and clerical child sex abuse also got sent to these homes. There were girls as young as 12 years old in these homes to hide them from the shame that they were going to be casting on society because of, of what the church and what the people believed at the time. <laughs> I know it's a different time, I know it's a different country, different culture than what I'm living in, but the fact that the church and the people thought the best way to handle unmarried pregnancies, and including victims of sexual assault, is to send them to these homes where all of these traumatic things happened, which we're going to get into. That is... (laughs) It's... I... Shameful doesn't even begin to describe how awful that is. Going back to Michael, he doesn't remember his time in the home, but he does remember when he left, which was at age 5, and he went to go live with a foster family with whom he lived for 10 years. And at that home, instead of the loving family that one would hope for, he was subjected to daily abuse. Quote, There wasn't a day that wouldn't go by that I wouldn't get a clip across the ear. End quote. When he was 15, he was sent to another foster family, not for any good reasons, but it was because his first foster family had stopped receiving payments from the state for housing him. His second home was even worse. He slept in a shed far away from his family, quote-unquote his family, and he worked from dawn until dusk. He said that, quote, I felt like a slave. You wouldn't do to an animal what was done to me, end quote. Luckily, his life did start to improve once he joined the army at age 24 and quote, finally learned what it felt like to be in a family, end quote. And that quote, that quote just breaks my heart because he had to wait until he was 24 to learn what it felt like to be into a family. Ugh, that's just so awful. So going throughout his life, he didn't know who his biological mother was, and he wanted to track her down, and through a lot of effort, he, with the the help of his wife, did. His mother, named Patricia, said that after returning from Chuam, she was turned away from the parish. Quote, the local priest there had told her family that she had brought shame onto them and the community, end quote. So again, that's something else where the parish is telling people in her community and her family that she had brought shame upon them. And they were able to get to uh, know each other and they enjoyed a little bit of time together, but unfortunately, just after they had gotten to know each other nine months after they had reconnected, Patricia ultimately passed away from cancer but before her death, Patricia said that there wasn't a single day that went by where she didn't think about Michael, and I'm so glad that she lived long enough to be able to get to know her son a little bit, that's great. So looking more at Chuam, the reality of what Chuam entailed so, how it came to be known, it started off with a historian named Katherine Corless. She had found the death record of 796 children, many of whom were infants, but none of them had burial records. And she did acknowledge that this period of time where these child deaths happened, it was at a time where there was a high infant mortality rate, but she couldn't understand why there were no burial records for the children. Like, you know, if all these children die and it's a time of high infant mortality, like that's really unfortunate, but where are these kids buried at? Where are, like, where are these kids resting? Her work uncovered something awful. Quote, her work found that children had been buried in what is now thought to have been a series of chambers located inside a decommissioned sewage tank near the home, end quote. Almost 800 children had died at the Chuam home. A BBC article was published in 2017 and it discussed how the grounds of the old Chuam house underwent test excavations in 2016 going into 2017. It was found that there were at least 20 underground chambers and there were human remains found in at least 17 of them. Quote, These remains involved a number of individuals with at, with age at death ranges from aprox- approximately 35 fetal weeks to 2 or 3 years old. So basically, all of these remains in these, like, underground burial chambers were 35-week fetal age to 2 or 3 years old. <laughs> I I just, God, it's awful. <sighs> okay, so Chuam wasn't the only home. Going back to that New York Times article, there were 18 homes that were a part of the report that was released in 2021. And even though the church ran the homes, quote, the newly founded Irish state worked hand in hand with them, making many effectively state institutions in all but name, end quote. So basically, these church-ran homes be were state-funded, like, state-mandated institutions because of the state funding they were getting. So you, I mean, I know this isn't the United States, but you have a huge integration of church and state. It's uh, not the best, probably. <laughs> when we're looking at this situation, not great. From the Timeline article, at the Best Borough mother and baby home in court, more than 900 children died there. However, despite quote, very extensive inquiries and searches, end quote, only 64 of the children's burial grounds have ever been located. So at this, at a different home, there are records of 900 children dying, but only 64 of their burial grounds have been found. So that poses the question, where are all of these other children's bodies? And I, I didn't. Like, I couldn't find if they had done, like, ground-penetrating radar things, but where are the other over 800 bodies of these children? Like, where did they go? They didn't just disappear. What happened to them? It's We know they died, but where are they? An NBC article reports that the commission—so this is the commission that released the report— They found allegations of children in the home, in different homes, quote, being used in vaccine trials with no parental consent for their participation, end quote. The report identified seven vaccine trials that took place in multiple homes and it was backed up by a former resident who was was a resident of one of the homes, She says that she was used as a guinea pig for the vaccine trials until she was adopted by a family in Philadelphia. So you have not only allegations of all of these children dying in these homes, their bodies being disposed of in awful ways, but now on top of it, you have vaccine trials on children without parental consent. And this is taking place between the 1920s And the 1960s or 70s, I think, is when, like, the majority of these things happened, like these horrible, horrible things. But these homes were around until 1998. Remember that. That's only about, I can't do math, 25, 30 years ago. (sighs) The report further said that before the year 1960, the homes didn't save the lives of illegitimate children, but rather, quote, significantly reduced their prospects of survival, end quote. And that's not surprising when you look at how many of these children died. We looked at one home where 900 children had died, at the Chuam home where I think it was close to 800 or over 800 children dying, and these homes were supposed to be beneficial somehow, quote-unquote. Mm, I don't know about that. It seems like they were... I mean, they weren't there for the purpose of killing children, by any means, but they were there shoving single women, unmarried women, and victims of sexual assault to go have their baby in secrecy so that they could not quote-unquote shame society. (laughs) And then that tied in with the fact of all of these children's death, I... God damn, like, (laughs) Jesus well not jesus because he <laughs> the jesus was the the house of jesus was a big part in this so let's not bring jesus into this. <laughs> oh god i probably just pissed a bunch of religious people off not saying all religion is bad but in this instance uh, not great. Okay, so we know all of these children had died, but why? It, it wasn't like the children were being killed or massacred or slaughtered by any means. Patsy McGarry for the Irish Times reports that for a long time, the narrative that, the narrative was that the most common cause of death was malnutrition. But this really wasn't the case. Rather, the main causes of death from that commission report in CHUAM and in other homes was, quote, prematurity and respiratory infections, convulsions, and whooping cough were other regular causes, as well as TB, flu, gastroin- oh boy, gastroenteritis, meningitis, and diphtheria. Uh, Tdap? Oh yeah, that's a Tdap shot. So a lot of these illnesses and I don't know the timeline of like vaccines and all these things that could have taken place and clearly there were vaccine trials going on which does not justify the fact that they were done on children without the the consent of parents but it just doesn't seem like the care at those homes was at a level that it should have been to help these children survive. The report along with the statement from the beginning it the report said that the women should not have gone there, which, duh, thank you for stating the obvious. The report also said that there was no evidence that women were forced by the church or the state to go to the homes, but it really didn't seem like they had much of a choice, and this was a big part of the report that survivors who lived through the homes took issue with. The Timeline BBC article reported that survivors said that, quote, they were victims of rape, incest, and sometimes clerical sex abuse, and they were sent to the homes by priests or doctors, end quote. So I don't really know how this report found no evidence that women were forced to go there if it's being recommended or like if they're being sent there by the priest or the doctor, maybe they're thinking like well, you weren't taken in handcuffs to the home so you weren't for you weren't forced to go there. but if your doctor is saying you need to go there, if your priest is saying you're bringing shame on your family and community, you need to go to this home, I would argue that that is force, even if it's maybe not physical force, you're being forced you're being manipulated like psychologically and emotionally to go to these homes, I would argue that that's force. Yeah, so that part of the report, the mothers and survivors of these homes had a big, big issue with. So if mothers somehow didn't end up in these homes, they were often pressured into giving up their newborns, which usually took place in shady adoptions. And going back to mothers in the home, the Timeline BBC article reported that one survivor who was in the home tried to leave, and so this was after she had given birth to her baby, she tried to leave, and quote, her baby was separated from her and she was locked into a room from where she could hear her child being given to a couple, end quote. In this home, this this mom had given birth to a child. She wanted to leave, presumably with her child, and the home was like, here's a solution. We're going to lock you in this room, and you're going to have to listen to us give your baby away to another couple. <laughs> Can you imagine? Th- how did... How did people think this was okay? Again, I know this is a different time, this is a different country than where I am, so I am not able to fully understand the influence that the Catholic Church has on this country, but how did people think that this is okay, especially members of the church? You're doing God's will by separating a mother from her child, locking her into a room, and then making her listen to you give a child away, giving her child away to a different couple? <laughs> I cannot understand that. And then the fact that the Ireland government was funding these institutions where this happened, that's it's ridiculous. One of the most famous stories of someone who went through these homes was Philomena Lee, who wrote an award-winning book about her journey to find her son. Her son was forcibly taken away from her and was sent, uh, was, sent, was adopted in America. Her son grew up as Michael Hess, who was a legal aide in the Bush and Reagan administrations. So it seemed, I mean, even though he was forcibly taken away from his mother, horrible, awful, we all know that that's horrible and awful. I mean, but it does sound like he did have a good life, which is good for him, but that still, still doesn't justify him being taken away from his mother. But unfortunately, by the time she learned of his identity, he had already passed away. So, like I said earlier, um, the historian started looking into the Chuam home and came up with this horrible discovery, but revelations about what was going on at all of these homes started to pop up in the early 2010s from what I could find. And again, this report, this almost 3,000 page report came out earlier this year in 2021. So, let's talk about what the survivors are asking for. Orla Ryan, writing for thejournal.ie, spoke to a number of survivors who attended online meetings with OAK Consulting. Ireland's government hired the consulting firm to oversee the consulting process of figuring out how to move forward from this, and these meetings took place in March and April of this past year, or of this year, so 2021. The article reports that there is a consensus that survivors should have, quote, some form of redress regardless of how long they spent in the institution, end quote. The report that was released in 2021, this is what it says in part about financial redress, financial compensation, however you want to phrase it. Quote, financial redress for past wrongs involves the present generation paying for the wrongs of earlier generations and it could be argued that this is unfair. However, while recognizing that all wrongs cannot be put right and that some groups have received financial redress, the commission considers that the state does have an obligation not to discriminate between people in similar situations, end quote. There was also something introduced in 1973 called the Unmarried Mother's Allowance, and the report stated that because of this, quote, "...women who entered mother and baby homes after 1973 do not have a case for financial redress," end quote. Lastly, the report suggested that there should be a requirement of someone having been in the homes for at least six months to be able to get financial redress, but the thing is, this report from the commission is only a recommendation to the government, so it's not binding, and it what that means is even though, like, okay, so the survivors, first of all, were not happy with these requirements they're thinking okay why does it have to be before 1973 even though even though there was this unmarried mother's allowance the fact that this trauma still happened maybe after 1973 that shouldn't matter and survivors are also mad because how come I had to stay like what if I stayed in this home for five and a half months and I was traumatized I'm not going to be allowed to get financial redress because I wasn't in there for your your requirement of six months, but the fact is that this is a recommendation, so there's really no that I could find. There's no established form of financial redress as of the time of this recording, and I am recording this on November 3rd, 19- what? What? (laughs) No, I'm recording this on November 3rd, 2021. We have not time-traveled. Some people are also wanting a Day of Remembrance, like a National Day of Remembrance, to, quote, remember all of the people who spent time in mother and baby homes and similar institutions, end quote. They also want memorials to be put up at sites all around the country where babies and mothers died, because remember, these homes were everywhere, it wasn't just one or two homes. And I've mainly focused on the deaths of the children, but there were instances across the country where mothers did die as well one thing that comes up from this is who pays because if you'll remember these homes were run by the catholic church but they had state funding from ireland one of the survivors says quote follow up with the catholic church but in the meantime we should be paid because if the state hadn't colluded with the catholic church and paid institutions it couldn't have happened they wouldn't have kept us for nothing end quote one thing i was interested in in doing all this research is, what do the people responsible have to say about this? And if you'll remember, I started off with an apology from the Prime Minister of Ireland, apologizing on behalf of the state of Ireland. From that NBC article, One Religious Order, the Sisters of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary, which ran three of the homes, investigated in the report, said that they, quote, welcomed the publication, end quote, of the report. They said, quote, For our part, we want to ser- sincerely apologize for those who did not get the care and support they needed and deserved. It is a matter of great sorrow to us that babies died while under our care. End quote. A BBC article from 2021 reported that the Sisters of Bon Secours religious order, which ran the Chuam home, offered its quote, profound apologies end quote, to the women and children who were there. An article by, Ronald, by Ronan Duffy cites public statements made by different religious leaders, and I'm going to read two of them to close out this scandal. Archbishop Michael Neary, Bishop of Tuam, said in part, quote, The Church of Jesus Christ was intended to bring hope and healing, yet it brought harm and hurt for so many of these women and children. This was a time when a single pregnant woman and their children were labeled as quote, "unmarried mothers" end quote, and quote, "illegitimate" end quote, and then judged, stigmatized and ostracized by their own families, by their communities and the church. As a church leader, I apologize unreservedly. End quote. And then the last statement in part I'm going to read is from Archbishop-Elect of Dublin, Dermont Farrell. He said that, quote, "...the silence which surrounded this shameful time in the history of our land had long needed to be shattered. The grievous failures of our past have been laid bare. A genuine response is required. Ours, as a church and a society, can only be a full apology without any reservation." This country, the church, our communities and families are better places when the light of truth and healing are welcomed. May the light of Christ bring healing to all." End quote. And that concludes Ireland's Mother and Baby Home Scandal. The first thing I want to say is this is no way and I am <laughs> this is in no way a comprehensive report clearly because I could not have talked about a 3,000-page report in 30-some-odd minutes. This episode encompasses a surface-level view of something that happened in Ireland's history that I think a lot more people should know about because the church and the state allowed for 9,000 children to die and allowed for the emotional and sometimes physical abuse of 56,000 single women. But not only were these single women, these were victims of sexual abuse and rape. Not that that makes the harm on not rape victims any less, but it just goes to show you what kind of behavior was allowed at this time. And again, these homes were, some of these homes were open until 1998. That is not that long ago that all of these atrocities happened. And I, I didn't, I'm sure in the report it details like a, an exact timeline of how these things broke down from what I could gather from the sources I used. It seems like a lot of these things happened a lot in like the the beginning, the 1920s, up through 1960-1970, but these homes were in existence until 1998, so just keep that in mind. That is going to conclude my telling of the Ireland mother and baby home scandal There is so much information out there, there's that report that if you really want to read, you definitely can. Um, I'll put the website at the end, as always, where you can find the sources that I used if you want to read up on those. And now I'm going to read two personal scandals that have been sent to me. And one thing I asked was, what scandals thing happened in your small town? And they didn't say the town, but they said it's from North Carolina. The local mean girl was a senior in high school, an all-star athlete with a 4.0, headed to a prestigious school. She cracked under the pressure and cheated on a major assignment. Another kid found out and emailed her from, her, from his school laptop, quote, I know what you did, you should tell the teacher or I will, end quote. The mean girl goes crying to her Karen mother. <laughs> Karen goes to the school and gets the email kid suspended for communicating threats. Mean Girl gets off scot-free, graduates with honors, and moves to New York City after graduating. That's horrible. Like, I I don't, I mean, I guess technically that's a threat, but she cheated on a huge major assignment, so in my mind, she should have failed it or had to com- do a completely different assignment, and the fact that she got no punishment, not cool. And then this one, um, I asked, what's your family secret? And just... So, you know, this one has to do with sexual assault. So just a little warning. Family secret time that made me very angry. My mom and grandma were sexual assault victims, but neither one told the other. My grandma, as a little girl, had a a neighbor attempt to abduct her when she was eight. She was afraid to tell because back in the 20s, sexual assault happened more than people realized, especially on children, and she never told her kids out of fear. My mom, as a little girl, was groped by a friend she had growing up. She didn't say anything because she didn't want to ruin his future. What made me angry was the outrage I had, both telling me their stories, and said I shouldn't be angry because it was, quote, a different time. I'm a victim myself as a... Uh, I'm a victim myself as a man. Okay. Okay, I see. So, I'm a victim myself as a man, but I stood up with my attacker. I stood up against my attackers. One got away, the other, I stuck his hand with my knife, and on an attempted attack, I threatened the port security in him. On him, uh, probably say on him. I threatened the port security on him. Them being unlike city cops, they will beat the shit out of you. If I ever have kids, I'm going to tell them if an adult or a peer inappropriately touches them to hit them in the face or groin and run. Call the cops and me or their mother. Because the minute I touch down and the cops don't save them, I will rain hell on them. Yes, I think, I mean, that is an, unfor- an unfortunate story, especially the fact that there is like there is a pattern of people in your family being abused. So I do... I apologize to you and your family for having to go through that traumatic situation, but one of the reasons why I think that one was important to read is to teach young people that if something inappropriate does happen, it's okay to speak up and they should speak up. Our culture, I think, especially with the Me Too movement, we were talking about this in criminal law, bring it up again the other day, our culture has finally started to realize that the constant sexual assault, rape, battery that not only women, but men, members of the LGBTQ plus community, that those people face is more prevalent than we probably realize and want to realize. And it's okay to speak up and it's hard and everyone's situation is different. You don't want to force people to come out of their shell, you don't want to force people to tell something that they're not comfortable telling, but I think it falls back on not only parents and family encouraging young people to speak up if that does unfortunately happen to them, but As a society, we need to make it a safe space to where victims of sexual assault, rape, feel like they can speak up about it and they can do so in a way that will lead to a positive result coming out of them speaking up. Because when people speak up, if they get shamed from their family, their friends, their community, their church, their whoever, of course, people who see that and are victims or do become victims, they're not going to want to speak up because they don't want that same thing to happen to them. So I read that because it's in like it's interesting to hear people's things that go on in their families, but I another reason why I read it is you as an individual try to work toward being someone who allows a safe space for victims of sexual assault rape to speak up if they choose to speak up. Because having that safe space I'm sure is going to help that victim of sexual assault rape abuse, I'm sure it's going to help them be able to start to find some way to move forward. You don't want someone to be stuck in a shell where they they can't feel like they, or where they feel like they can't talk to anybody. Okay, kind of a heavy, definitely a heavy episode and a little last heavy scandal, but I hope you enjoyed this episode question mark i hope you found this episode interesting it was definitely one that was hard to research and i'm sure it was hard to listen to but yeah it's definitely important and it needs to be talked about so segueing from that really hard topic if you want to stay up to date on Instagram at scandal101podcast, on Twitter at scandal101pod, Facebook page scandal101podcast the website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com and that's where you can find the show notes where I have all my information and then the email if you want to send your personal scandal is scandal101podcast at gmail.com yeah, this was a rough episode but I want to thank you so much for listening and this has been episode 25 five of Scandal one oh one.